morning. In case I haven't met you yet, my name is Garrett. I'm lead pastor here at Delray Baptist. And uh, at this point in our service, we open the Bible and walk through verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we are in the book of Ecclesiastes. So kind of right in the middle of your Bible there, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 this morning. We're going to pray once more and ask for God's help in both the preaching and the receiving of his word. So would you, would you join me as we, as we pray? Father, your word tells us that if we lack wisdom, we should ask you for it, knowing that you delight in giving it, and that you won't scold us for asking, but that you will give if we ask in faith. So we come with yeah, feeble faith, and we cry out and we say, God, please, would you, for your glory and for our good, take your scripture by the power of your spirit through yeah, your feeble servant, and would you help all of us, including me, to receive your word? Would you give us ears to be able to hear it and eyes to see it and minds to understand it and hearts to believe it and wills that are surrendered to what you say to us? Father, we pray that you would overcome all of our sluggishness and our apathy and our weariness and our uh, abiding sin and uh, all of the reasons that we would have for not hearing your word now. And might you help us. God, please, for your glory, show us your sovereign hand that oversees all things and help us to be a people who trust you no matter what season of life we may be in. We pray this in the name of Christ. One of the, yeah, one of the, the things about being a pastor is that I, I kind of get a, a bird's eye view of what's going on in the life of, of the church. Not just that I'm up here on the stage now and can see everybody out there and who's awake and who's not, but, um, which I do watch you, by the way, but, uh, <laughs> but, but in God's providence, with the kind of pastors that you have, we, we just know what's going on in, in people's lives. We want to pray for you, we want to help you, we want to teach you to apply God's word. And, and as we do that, we get, we get a vantage point of, of really an interesting thing that I think is captured here in the book of Ecclesiastes, and that's the fact that right now there are, there are billions of things going on in our lives, and they're all intersecting in different ways. And we've, we've seen that even this week here at Delray Baptist. I mean, we have, we have fans of the Capitals who finally get to cheer and not weep because they won the Stanley Cup, Right? Well, at the same time yesterday, our second grade soccer team got the last couple minutes of our game rained, rained out, and we ended up losing because we didn't have more time to come back and beat the team. <laughs> this week, there's been, there's been babies born, and there's been family members who have died. There are some who are enjoying their first couple weeks of marriage, while there's others who are hanging on trying to keep their marriages together. There's, there's family members who have gotten good news on health scares. And there's others who have been given weeks to live. One person's family member with mental health issues is doing well and, and got a job, which was, which was a huge step for them. While another had a family member attempt suicide. Some of you got raises and promotions at work this week. Others of you lost your jobs. 
someone went on a date. Others go through another weekend without being asked out again. Some are ensnared in sin. Others resisted sin and know the sweetness of that even now. I could go on and on all afternoon, and that's just this week at Delray Baptist. This is the sort of thing when you look at and you, you see all of these different things that are going on in one another's lives. You can look at life like that and you, we can understand why the author of Ecclesiastes begins his sermon in chapter 1 by saying, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Life just doesn't seem to make sense so often when you just look at the stuff that is happening. This is what we saw last week in chapters 1 and 2 of, of this book. That all of our pursuits and, and pleasures that we, we seek after to, to give life meaning are, are, are like vanity, which we use the, the illustration of trying to catch smoke, which you just can't grab it. And the harder you try to grab it, the quicker it goes away. It's impossible to keep those things, so rather what the author told us last week is that we must simply learn to enjoy them while we have them and see them as a good gift from God. And in chapter 3, he's going to introduce for us the fact that there are ever-changing seasons in life in which we are chasing after all of this, this meaning. There are times of, of of appointed happiness and sorrow that are all governed by God's mysterious purposes that we ultimately don't know what they are, but that we are living through and seeking to try to figure out. Our, our, our big idea for, for chapter 3 this morning is this, is that, that we must seek God's wisdom in every season of life so that we will fear and trust in Him. We must seek God's wisdom in every season of life, whether those things that we just read through were, were happy for you or sad for you, whatever your, your season is right now, that, that what we're supposed to do in the midst of that season is seek wisdom from Him so that we will fear Him, knowing that He is God and we are not, and trust Him, knowing that He is good and not malicious. This is what the author of Ecclesiastes wants us to see here in chapter 3. The way we're going to work through this is chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, we're going to see life's seasons, and then verses 10 through 22, we're going to see God's reasons. Life's seasons and God's reasons, and how they, they are intertwined in a way that truly only the Lord understands, but that we are trying to, to live through. So let's start here in chapter 3. Verses 1 through 9. And in case you weren't here last week, I just want to encourage you to, to remember that Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature, which feels very different than the epistles of the New Testament, which are very logical and clear. <laughs> wisdom literature is intending to make you feel, help you to feel things, to lead you somewhere, just as much as it wants you to understand <laughs> the lessons along the way trying to help you to feel what life is about. And I think we'll sense that here as we look at life's seasons, verses 1 through 9. For everything there is a season, 
and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Just as earth has a, a rhythm built into it that we saw in chapter 1 where the, the wind blows around and around and the sun goes up and down and the rivers flow in and out, so life seems to, yeah, to be made up of seasons, of, of ups and downs, of sweets and sours. And this, this poem captures the human experience of life masterfully. The longer that you live on this planet, the more you can go through that poem right there and find how you've been in most of them. This is why, this is really one of the most famous portions of all of Scripture. This is why this is read at the funerals of both believers and non-believers alike. Atheists will read this, this passage of Scripture um, at, at, at funerals. This same section here supplied the bulk of the lyrics for the birds. Number one hit in 1965, uh, Turn, Turn, Turn. Somebody sent that to me this week. Um, we didn't sing it this morning, but there you go. You can listen to it on YouTube if you want. But the, the, the preacher here speaks of these experiences as being appointed in a season or a time. Did you catch that there in, in verse 1? Seasons are, are, are durations of moments. Days clump together, weeks clump together, months clump together, years clump together. Those are seasons. Where times, when they're speaking about times, those are particular moments. Points on a map, points in, in, in life where you can point and say, that thing happened there at that time on that date. And what the author is showing us here is something that we all, we all kind of know is that life is filled with both seasons and times within those seasons that mark us and shape us and confuse us to no end. And if you know much of my story, you'll know that for me, 2007 was a unique year. It was a, it was a season of humbling and purifying and strengthening me. And in the midst of that year-long season that I often call the anvil, an anvil is something hard that you lay something on and pound. I felt like that's what, it was the year of the anvil for me in which God was crushing me. But in the midst of that season of humbling and purifying and strengthening, there were times in it that, that marked me. There were low times. So for instance, on June 16th, just next week, 11 years ago, 
I, I was involved in a very bad burning accident where 12% of my body was, was covered in second and third degree burns. My face, my arm had to be care flighted out. Um, that, that marked me in, in many ways. But there were also high points in that, that season. Uh, 56 days after that, I married my beloved bride, Carrie. She was sending invitations from the ICU burn ward in Dallas. There were also sweet, sweet things when we got back from our honeymoon and found out that we were pregnant. And then sorrowful things when, when we miscarried those children. And that's, that's, that's life. We have seasons where there are times in those that mark us, highs and lows, sweets and sours, things that we we'll always want to remember and things that we wish we could forget. Our lives are stories made up of seasons and times. And he says here, for everything, there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Every matter under heaven. Every activity, every event that people do. Speaking here about willful choices that we make in the midst of seasons and times that are appointed by God. So very often these seasons and these times are not things that we really signed up for. Sometimes they are. But very often they're not. God just introduces them into our life and says, this is what we're going to do now. And what the, what the preacher does here for us, that's what he calls himself in chapter 1, he's the preacher, is he, he takes us through to teach us a lesson about these seasons and times. He does it here, you'll, you'll notice, in 14 pairs of contrasts. So the number 7 in Hebrew... Um, represents completeness. And if you add them all up, that's how you get the date that Jesus comes back. No, I'm just kidding. Just, just checking. People do that stuff. We don't do that stuff. But, <laughs> but, but it is a meaningful number, okay? It, it, it's, God uses it oftentimes to show completeness or wholeness. So you have two lists of seven pairs here. It, it, it's capturing the idea that this poem paints the whole picture of life with all of its contrasts. In many ways, it's like a, a, a slideshow at a wedding or a funeral when you, when you see pictures that take you back to places in life and you remember sweet things or hard things in those times. Verse 2, we're just going to comment on each of these briefly. A, a time to be born and a time to die. These are the, the bookends of life here, over which really we have no control. There's a beginning and an end to life. And everything that follows here fills up those days. There's verse 2, a time to plant and a, a time to pluck up what is planted. It's a, it's a farming analogy, that, that the idea that there's sowing and there's harvesting. There's a time to work and then there's a time to get your paycheck and enjoy the fruit of your labor. Verse 3, there's a time to kill and a time to heal. For some days come to execute justice. There are also days to heal and to help and to bind up the hurting. Verse 3, there's a time to break down and a time to build up. I remember when I, right before I was, I was married, my, I, I bought a house on a lake in, in Texas for $45,000, by the way. <laughs> Housing prices are different up here. Um, but it was, it was an old shack, and my dad and I, we came down there with a few buddies, and we tore it down to the studs, and then we, we built it back up. 
it, it was a time to tear down and to build up, and I'll never forget that time that I had with my dad. There's verse 4, a time to weep and a time to laugh. Friendships are built up through life. Many times they're filled with laughter, but sometimes those friendships end and those fr very friends that you used to laugh with betray you in the same life. There's a time to mourn and a time to dance. Perhaps you dance with a spouse at a wedding, and then one day perhaps you drench their casket with tears when you bury them before you. There's a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. Walk with friends by the lake and you pick up stones to toss them out and skip them along. There's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. I, th I think about this often with, with holding my, my daughters at their birth. And then I think there's going to be a time, Lord willing, when I'll send them off to college or give them away at, at a wedding. There's time to embrace and a time to refrain from it. There's a time to seek and a time to lose. <laughs> you find your phone and then you, you lose your phone. You make money and then you, you spend money. I'm on a hot water heater. That keeps breaking. Um, you, you, go, you go to school and you, you gain knowledge and then you grow old and you, you can't remember anything that happened. This is life. There's a time to keep and a time to cast away. One day you, you hide gifts for your kids, and then a couple months later, you're basically trying to give it away at a yard sale. And that's just that's how, that's how it goes. There's a time to tear and a time to sew. You play in the woods and you tear your jeans and you patch them up. And you cut open for surgery and you sew back up the heel. There's a time to keep silent, a time to speak. Right? There's times when courage requires you to stand up boldly. You can probably think of times that you stood up boldly. There are other times that wisdom calls you to be quiet. There's a time to love and a time to hate. There's people we grow to love in life that you can't imagine doing life without. And there's also people that you can grow to hate even if you don't want to. There's a time for war and a time for peace. Most of us have never lived in a time where there's not been a little bit of both. You see, most everything that we experience is captured here in this, this poem. Ecclesiastes does not paint life as, it, as, it, <laughs> as we wish it would be, or as we want it to be, but rather it, it paints life as it is. This beautifully complex thing of, of good and bad times, happy and sad times, things that you want to remember and things you wish you could forget, and things that you're not quite sure whether this is going to be good or bad yet. You haven't seen enough of the story. And in this, this poem, we hear echoes from the Garden of Eden, don't we? The sweetness and the beauty that we experience in life but at the same time, you can't avoid the scars of the curse that have haunted us since the day that we were sent out from paradise. And as we read, we're intended to say, that's, that's real, I see that, but what, do I, what am I supposed to do with all these pieces? What does it all mean? How does it all fit together at the end of the day what is it is it all just madness vanity striving after the wind or is there some meaning to it 
Life feels like one big Lego or Ikea experience where you buy this thing and when you open the box, what do you have? Pieces. How many of you have ever tried to put something together from Ikea? Never again. This is why you get friends who love doing that and you can, you can thank them for coming over. But this is, this is how it is. You open up and there's, there's pieces everywhere. And this is exactly how life is. There are pieces that come in times and seasons. The trick, however, <laughs> is that we are not given the whole instruction sheet of how the pieces fit together. God doesn't give us the whole story because God alone holds the master plan. He alone knows how it's all going to fit together. But we, down here, by the power of the Holy Spirit through the Scriptures, are given enough to take the piece that's handed to us and to respond with it correctly. To take the next step that's in front of us. Life is a bit like that. This process of, of putting together can be confusing and frustrating and at the same time rewarding. Because as you go piece by piece and you link all these things together in the right places, in the right ways, in the right times, and oftentimes we don't see how a piece matters until later and you're like, oh, that's what that piece did. But God always sees how they fit together. God knows. God has the master plan and he is working it out because he is the one who sets seasons and times he is the one who oversees all situations and circumstances what we have in ecclesiastes 3 here is 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 this this picture there are so many things here that we cannot plan for and that we cannot avoid we wonder what is happening is this worth it which is what the question in verse 9 asks what gain has the worker from his toil This is back to the question the author introduced at the beginning of his sermon. You remember last week back in chapter 1, this idea of gain shows up seven times. What do we get out of this crazy life? When it's all over, what do I have to show for life? When I endure all these seasons, all the highs, the lows, the joys, the sorrows, what do we gain from that? What is the point? You're born... You're in diapers, then you laugh, then you cry, then you grow, then you love, then you dream, then you succeed, then you fail, then you grow, and then you're back into diapers, and then you die. It's just, it's just true. And that little bit of laughter that you just did, we were talking about this at staff meeting this week, that, that Ecclesiastes is like a dark comedy, where you're, you're reading through and you're kind of laughing, and you're like, that's not actually funny. That's my whole life. That's what wisdom literature is intended to do for us, to capture all of the ironies and the questions that perplex us. This is why the preacher began his sermon declaring, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. We can't control life. You can't, I can't, we can't fix everything that's broken down here. One of the mysteries in God's universe is that not every problem is meant to be solved by us. There are many things in life that simply he calls us to endure. You see, see, wisdom that comes from God doesn't teach us how to master the world. Rather, it teaches us to trust the master of the world who is working out his perfect plan. There's a great difference. And knowing the difference is the only place to find meaning in the midst of the madness. 
And that is why I actually think it's a tragedy to read Ecclesiastes 3 at a funeral and to stop at verse 8. Where it's just this nice mess and everybody's like, well, there's a time for that. Off, off we go to have, have, have dinner and say goodbye forever. And just pretend like nothing else is happening. That's, that's, a, that's actually a tragedy. Because God doesn't stop there. Life has seasons, but God has reasons. Which is our second point, beginning in verse 10. God's reasons. Let's go uh, 10 down through 15 and we'll pause for a moment. Verse verse 10. I have seen uh, the, the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is has already been, and that which is already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. The preacher here looks out over all that God has arranged for man to do, and he perceives something very important. That the the times and the seasons of life that we go through are not random. Listen, there is no such thing as good luck or bad luck. Rather, there is a God who sits behind it all and is orchestrating all things what he says here in verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. That word beautiful means proper or fitting or appropriate. What what Solomon does for us here is right after this, this description of the madness and all the seasons of life, he introduces for us something that he told us at the end of chapter 2 is that there actually is a God. And what he tells us here about this God is that this God is what you might you think of as an artist. He's a a sculptor of circumstances. He he appoints and he shapes every event and every human choice together in a masterful way that is fitting. It is beautiful. When I was in Istanbul, Turkey, a number of years ago, we come to these, came walk through a market. And we came to a place where there, there were these rugs, and we saw a seamstress, and she was working on a rug. And basically there's this, this burlap back, this kind of rectangle, and you see her poking through with this rod, these, uh, y- the yarn, the, the string, and she'd pull it back through. And, and, and we're watching her, and we think, hey, man, she's, she's, she's getting after it. And, uh, but it's pretty ugly, to be honest. And we didn't say this out loud, but this is what we're thinking, because we're watching this, and it just, it just didn't look good. On the back, you see all these, 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 these blacks and these yellows and these whites and these red, and, these, and they're all just kind of hanging out, and it just looked like a, just looked like a hot mess. Just an awful lot. It looks, looks, looks like a mess. And I'm thinking, well, you know, she gets an A for effort, and good job, and this is really cultural. And I'm like, okay, what do we do? And then, and then, she turned it around. 
and it was beautiful. She, she, she had, you know, I just can't, I don't know how she, she did it, but she, she, she took all of these different strands and colors and, and worked it together to this beautiful portrait of, of, of things that just flowed together in a way that was, I almost bought it. <laughs> like it was, it was amazing. Life is, is quite like that with God where God is very much doing the same thing. That He is weaving situations and circumstances together where we see the back of it and we just see strands that are kind of all over the place. It doesn't seem to make sense. But, but deep down, we know there's got to be more than that. And even, even unbelievers deep down have a sense of it. So if you're here as a, as a non-Christian this morning, somebody who's not a believer... I would just wonder, do you, do you think that there's actually a deeper meaning to life? I mean, we, we hear it all the time that everything has a purpose or everything happens for a reason. The reason that people feel that way is because verse 11 tells us that God has put eternity into man's heart. You see, one of the things that we can't escape is that we have divine fingerprints on our souls. God made us. God desires all people to know that he's real and that he's working and that he is what makes life meaningful. But that, that mere divine imprint that we all share is not enough to understand life's meanings. Because the reality is, verse 11, yet we cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Meaning, we're often down here looking at the times and the seasons of life, wondering if there's really any meaning at all. We, we want to think that there's a meaning, and we feel like there's a meaning, and for those who are in Christ, we have the rest of Scripture, which assures us that there's meaning, but, but the basic human experience is looking there, saying there's got to be something more than this. And here's the, one of the things that you, we've got we've to capture when we think about, okay, well, why would God do it this way then? You see, God isn't being unkind to us by not disclosing everything to us. The fact is, we are simply incapable of understanding the big picture of what he's doing. Sorry to use so many kid illustrations this morning, but it was the thing, I've had a, have, had a long week with, with the kiddos, so it's on my mind a lot, but um, parents see this all the time with children, right? My wife and I are trying to make wise, loving decisions that are going to keep them both happy, because we want them to be happy, happy little critters, but we also want them to be safe, right? And we have this, we have a plan in mind that very often they don't understand. They, they don't understand why they can't go to such so-and-so's house where, where mom and dad just had the sermon that we think it's probably not best for you to go over there. Or there's, there's shows that they really want to watch because everybody else is watching it. And we're like, you know what? That's fine if everybody else wants to watch it, but but you know what, we actually think there's things in there that aren't good for you to see at this stage of your life. Or, or there's times that they're like, we want, we want to do this, we want to do that, and they don't know that actually what we're planning is to take them like to the water park or Disney World or something like that. They don't, they don't understand that we've actually got a big plan that if they would just trust us in the midst of it and hold on rather than freaking out and being like, why can't we do this or that? 
But over time, the more that we show them that we, we love them and we have their, their best in mind, they grow to trust us. Which, by the way, just a note for those of you who are parents or those of you who, who maybe aren't parents but are, are around kids, please speak into their lives. But, but remember that, that our job is, is to help kids see what it looks like to have a wise, loving God in heaven who cares for them. So oftentimes in those teaching moments, we'll, we'll pause and be like, hey, remember when you wanted to do this and you were getting so frustrated? Well, here's what we were doing for you. And then we tell them, God does the same thing to mommy and daddy all the time, which is a good reminder for those who are parents and those who are helping with kids ministry, that whenever you're like, why didn't the kid get it? Just think, oh, why don't I get it? <laughs> God is teaching everybody in the room at the same time. Well, knowing that we have a wise, loving, purposeful, heavenly father frees us to enjoy life which is what he says in 12 and 13 i perceive that there is nothing better for them than to enjoy or i'm sorry to to be joyful and to do good as long as they live also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all this toil this is god's gift to man again god is here shown to be a gracious god who gives good gifts for us to enjoy But the trick is that if you try to make eating and drinking and working and achieving your fulfillment, you will forever be miserable. God's God's tricked it. He's he's rigged it that way. Chapters 1 and 2 showed us that that he gives these things, and they're, they're wonderful gifts, but they are terrible gods. So what we need to do, as we're learning here in chapter 3, is to rest in God's wisdom, seeing his benevolent provision should lead us to trust him in the midst of this, take every good thing that he gives along the way, but to know that we can't control it all. Verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. He wants us to know here, in the midst of all of our mess and our swirling about, that God has eternal purposes that he is carrying out. And he often interrupts our temporal plans to accomplish them. And knowing this serves our souls so well because it continually assures us that there's nothing that happens in life without purpose. Even if we don't see how it fits together. So like this week, our family, we're planning to go to Texas for the Southern Baptist Convention and then planning to stick around for about 10 days after to be a part of a wedding and to see some old friends. And I'm hoping to have some days of writing so you can pray for that. And our family has been really excited about this. Everybody's stoked, ready to go. But then, of course, kids have been dropping like flies with sickness, which makes everything packing hard. It makes everything else hard. And thinking about, oh, no, are they going to be sick on the plane? Are they going to be sick there? Anybody? Like thinking about that. And then, and you can, you can pray for this, my, my wife's aunt is, is in ICU right now and is, yeah, is, is on the brink of, of life or death. We, we planned a trip to Texas, but God said, hold on, I have other plans as well. Many things that we don't get to choose how things come or go. And do you you notice why God does it this way? Do you see what it says right there in verse 14? God has done it so that people fear before him. God's arranging of seasons is intended to make us to fear him. It's Proverbs 9.10 that says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. 
You see, when we revere God and know that He is God and that we are not, and that He sees all things from beginning to end, and that we only have very small sight of little bits in the midst of it, it, it produces a humility that keeps us sane, that gives us peace, to trust that He's working in ways that I can't even see. And because I know His character, that He's good, He's not just up there in heaven batting around plans, being like, ha ha, you can't do that. That's not Him. That's not what His character is like. We look to the cross and see what He's done for us in Christ, and we know that He's nothing but a good Father. And if that's the case, then we can trust Him in the midst of all of these detours. Verse 15, God seeks what has been driven away, or the NIV renders it, God will call the past to account. This is intended to bring us comfort, to assure us that there is nothing that has passed by in this fleeting life that God will not seek out, that he will not bring into restoration. Ultimately, with judgment on the last day, but there's nothing wasted in God's world. And and the fact is, again, we don't see the complete picture of God's beautiful providence now, but I promise you this, 10,000 years from now, if you are in Christ, when, when you know what God knows, we will not accuse him of anything except being faithful. We just don't see what he sees. And God thinks it's best that way because he's a good father who knows what we can handle and what we can't. How many of you, if God told you what was going to be down a certain road that you ventured down, you would have never gone down that road? Most everybody who's paid attention to their lives. Spurgeon said in heaven, we we shall see that we had not one trial too many. You see, this perspective gives us peace which is necessary to be able to make it through in a world filled with pain. Because there is pain. Verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. The preacher here, he goes right for the jugular. He says, there is, there's an elephant in the room and we're going to talk about it. And this, this is the accusation that is most levied against God. If God's so wise then, if, if this God's so good then, if this God's so powerful and purposeful then, then why is there so much corruption? Why is there so much evil? Why, why, why is injustice so often thriving in the very place that it's supposed to be squashed? Why are courts and governments and systems and authority using powers to oppress rather than than to help so often? And you don't don't have to be a Christian to to have those kinds of questions and to feel that. Everybody, again, is hardwired for justice. We long for it. We, We want it. Which goes back to verse 11, that God has put eternity in our hearts and we bear the image of a good God who will bring justice on all evil in this life. Verse 17, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. 
We saw in chapter 3, verse 1, that there's a time and there's a season for every activity and event that people do under heaven. Here we see that every time and season is moving toward a moment, toward a time in which God will call everyone to account for everything that they have done in their times and in their seasons. What that means, that, that makes every moment meaningful. Every good work done, every injustice done, whether done to us or by us, is seen by God. And God will seek out what has been driven away. He will bring it and make it right. And sometimes we get little pictures of the, that sort of justice in this life. I mean, you, you, could, you could pick many stories, but, but recently the story of, of Larry Nasser and his abuse of uh, yeah, well over 100 uh, women. Larry Nasser had his day in court, and pre-justice came, where he got 175 years. And the, the judge said, I, I signed your death sentence. That is pre-justice. It addresses, as well as humans can in some ways, injustices done to fellow humans. And oftentimes, we even saw in verse 16, it doesn't happen that way. And people who are oppressive get, get off the hook. But one of the things that the author introduces for us here is that, hold on, it, we call it pre-justice, is because that is nothing compared to the day of justice in which God, who knows all and sees all, will bring all things into the light and hold people accountable for everything that they have done to one another and to him. We've got to remember that sin is not just breaking rules. It's a personal offense against God Almighty. And there is a day coming, the author of Ecclesiastes tells us, that all of these seasons and times that are swirling around, they will come to a halt before the throne of God, and there will be justice that will come, that will be right and true and full. And he says these things are intended to make us fear him. This is also where the good news of the gospel is so appropriate. That God is a just God. Because he's good, he will judge evil. But he is also merciful and he desires none to perish, but all to come to the knowledge of the truth. Which is why he sent his son Jesus. Jesus came and he did all of these seasons right. Think about it. Jesus went through every one of these seasons of life perfectly. He was Born at the fullness of time. He died on a cross as he was predestined to do. He planted seeds into the hearts of his disciples and he warned that they must bear fruit or they'd be plucked up like the fig tree. He was killed because he came to heal. He broke down the veil that separated us from God to build up his church. He wept at Lazarus' tomb and he laughed at death when he rose from the tomb. He embraced his disciples as forgiven sinners, and he handed Judas over as a betrayer. At times he was silent because he would not defend himself, but he also spoke words of forgiveness and healing. He made war against sin, Satan, and death so that we would forever know peace. Jesus went through every one of these seasons perfectly in all the ways that we do not 
And then he went to the cross, and there he received the judgment for every sin that will be brought into the light. He received judgment, and then he rose from the dead. And now the good news is that no matter where you have been or what you have done or how you've responded in these seasons and times, today you can be forgiven and made right and reconciled to God. Which, which I, I want to say here that we, we, we live in a time when many private sins are being exposed publicly. And this is, I think, a great mercy of God as we wind down human history. Because it aids those who are being exposed uh, to, to, to repent and to prepare for the ultimate day of judgment. Not just the, the day of, 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 of human courts and social media, but of the, the real day when all things will truly be known as they are. And it also warns us that one day all of our sins will come into the light. It's easy to sit back and be like, yep, that, that dude's a bum, or that girl, mm-hmm, she had it coming. It's easy to sit back and to do that and to find the sins in others, but this is God's mercy for us to take time to be honest about ourselves, that we might be prepared. And God has given the world a perpetual reminder of the fact that a day of judgment is coming, and that reminder is death. Verse 18, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast for all his vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of a man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is sounding the siren. Death is coming for you. Life begins, but it will end. Enjoy life, but do it with an eye toward your funeral. Which again, sounds really morbid, but it's extraordinarily helpful. God is showing us that it is wise to continually be sobered by our mortality. Most of us try to do everything we can to ignore it at all costs. But God says no. No, don't don't do that. Even look at the animals. You'll die just like dogs and donkeys and every other beast of the field. Verse 18, God is testing people. The word there for it means to clear out or to purge. God is clearing our minds to see that, hey, you're you're no different from animals in the sense that, there's lots of ways we're different than animals, but we're different from animals in the sense that we die like they do. Who knows whether their spirit goes up or down? Hey, nobody knows apart from divine revelation. But here's your revelation, he says. Death is coming for you. So prepare for the day of judgment. And verse 22, rejoice in your work and the fruit of your labor while you are able. Verse 9 asks the question, what gain is the worker from his toil? And verses 18 through 22 answers us. You gain sobriety about the fact that you're going to die. And again, that sounds like, wow, that's heavy. And it is, and it's intended to be. This perspective frees you from trying to control life. 
but rather to come to the place where in faith you can enjoy what God gives you. Don't put your trust in riches and pleasures and accomplishments and wealth to give you life because it can't, but rather trust God who is sovereign over life. Because who can bring you to see what you will be after your life? Well, the answer is God can. And that's what he's doing through this chapter. He's showing us that life has many ever-changing times and seasons and that we cannot control them, but that we must trust that he has a purpose. So enjoy life in such a way that prepares you for the day of judgment when God will evaluate everything done in those times and seasons. Now, we're going to give you five brief applications. You ready? Just like last week, here we go. How do we think about, what does this mean for us? Well, number one, know that you are not in control of life. Number one, you are not in control of life. This is one of the most difficult realities for us. We map out our calendars and draw our lines and we expect to follow paths that we paved, but God often introduces a detour and he does not apologize for it. But what we've got to do is to learn to receive God's detours rather than resist them, knowing that he is good and that he is wise. So I want to ask you, do you feel the need to be in control of everything? Does it freak you out when stuff doesn't go like you planned it? If so, you've got to ask why. Because Ecclesiastes wants you to know you, you are not God. And you are not going to be in control of everything. And the sooner that we can embrace that, there is liberty that frees you from such anxiety and fear all the time. Do you need to know how it fits all together? If so, why? Is your desire for controlling life working against a posture of dependence upon God? You're not in control. Number two. Trust that every appointed season has its divine purpose. Trust that every appointed season has a a divine purpose. Nothing is wasted in God's world. He has purposes for absolutely everything that happens under heaven. And most of the time, we have no idea what it is. As John Piper said, I think I've quoted this recently, but it's, it's great, so I'll do it again. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. He's working in the midst of seasons in ways that we don't get. So trust that with God, He is working. Everything fits. Nothing is wasted. Romans 8.28 is true. We know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. For those who are in Christ, you have the assurance that God works together, planting and plucking and weeping and laughing and love and hate and injustice and suffering, that he orchestrates it all in such a way that will prove one day to be good for his people and glorious for his name. And in the midst of those seasons, God will very often bring you face to face with your greatest fears. Some of you right now know exactly what I mean, that God forces you to look square in the face of something that you wish he'd just never brought into your life. This is not what you signed up for. This is not the way you wanted it. 
But please know that he does that not to torture us, but he does it because he wants to expose us. To show us that we aren't in control and that he is faithful and that we can trust him. Do not despair. Listen, if God can use the greatest evil in history, the torturing to death of his son, to become the greatest good in history, the salvation of sinners for the glory of God, then we can rest knowing that God will work every time, season, and stuff in them together for the good of those who love God. So trust that every appointed season has a divine purpose. Thirdly, seek God's wisdom for every step. Seek God's wisdom for every step. The ever-changing times and seasons of life keep us in continual need for wisdom from God. I gave you that James 1 passage where if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all generously without reproach and it will be given to him. This is very important for your walk with Christ. Listen, God promises to give wisdom if we ask for it. But he will not tell you everything that you want to know. He will not do that. He often gives us just enough wisdom for the moment. Just enough light for the next step. And he does this again and again because he's teaching us to walk by faith. And in the midst of that, we learn that he's faithful and he's good and he learns how much he, we learn how much he loves us. And that is infinitely better than having all the answers to why life is going the way that it is. So pray, read his word, walk with each other. Part of the, my intent in sharing that thing at the beginning about what's going on is to remind us that we are not all strong at the same time. The list of circumstances that I read is just a glimpse of what is happening in our lives. And we must be a church that enters into one another's seasons and times, that weeps with those who weep and rejoices with those who rejoice very often at the same time. I want you to know that very often you'll feel alone in dark seasons, but you are not. This is part of what it means to be a church. Fourthly, don't look to circumstances for confirmation of God's love. Don't look to circumstances for confirmation of God's love. As we have seen, there is, at, there is no formula for life. You can't look at what is going on and have a clear understanding of what God thinks of you. If you doubt that, read the book of Job, where God says Job is faithful. He loved Job. Job didn't do, quote, anything wrong. And then his whole life was obliterated. Listen, if you try to determine if God loves you by looking at the circumstances that he brings into your life, you will continually be tossed to and fro wondering what he actually thinks about you. But if you look to the cross, you will never doubt. Continually keep your eyes on Christ and know that God loves you in the midst of all of the tossing and the turning. And fifthly and finally, live in light of the final judgment. As we've seen throughout this book so far, we must live in light of the fact that everything we do will be evaluated by God. This means that life has meaning. Live in light of the end. So again, if you're, if you're not a Christian here today, I just want you to know those promises that we just walked through about everything working together for the good, those are, those are not for you if you're not in Christ. Things do not get better 
People do not go to a better place if they die and do not have their sins forgiven. There is actually, it gets worse. There is judgment before God. But for the believer, our hope is that there is a day coming in which all the seasons and the times will be brought into a masterful end where God will turn around the picture and show us how he worked it all together in ways that we could never understand, but that we will ever give him praise for. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you and we pray that you would use this book and this weighty word to help us, to liberate us from the feeling that we need to have everything in control. Help us to fear you and keep your commandments, knowing that this is the whole duty of life, knowing that you will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. Help us to know that life is not meaningless, but that you are a God who meaningfully weaves everything together. And God, for those of us who are tr struggling through that right now, God, would you, would you help our eyes to be lifted to you where our help comes from? And as we take of the Lord's Supper now, would you remind us of the faithfulness that you have showed us in Christ? And might we receive these elements as reminders of your steadfast love to him. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, we do have the joy and the privilege of ending our time together by celebrating